You guys can turn to Acts chapter 15. Well, there's a fable told of a powerful king who lived long ago who wanted to understand how his kingdom worked. He wanted to understand how economics and the marketplace worked in his kingdom. And so he summoned all of his economic advisors and counselors, and he told them to go off and spend a few weeks summarizing the whole subject of economics in as few words as possible. So they go off for a few weeks, and like any good economist, they come back with 87 volumes of 600 pages each, and the king looked at it and got angry and executed half of them on the spot, told the other half, go off, try again. Fewer words, please. They go off for a few weeks, come back a little more nervous this time with just one big book of many, many pages. And so the king kills another half of them, says, try again. This cycle repeats over and over until there's only one economist left. And he trembles before the king and rises to his feet for one last chance to satisfy the king. And he says, sire, In eight words, I will reveal to you all the wisdom that I have distilled through all these years from all the writings of all the economists who once practiced their sciences in your kingdom. Here it is, Lord. There is no such thing as a free lunch. (laughs) That is all of economics boiled down into one statement. You never get something for nothing. You don't get valuable things in this world for no cost. Now, you may not have to pay money for them, but you will pay in some way. I learned that in high school. My family, we went to Florida, and we really wanted to go visit Universal Studios, but the tickets were crazy expensive. And so my parents saw this this deal. You could go and have a short conversation with a timeshare salesman, and he would give you free tickets for your family to go. But there was nothing short about it. My parents were trapped in a room listening to a high-pressure sales pitch for hours. It cost them lots of time and emotional energy because... There's no such thing as a free lunch. Anything of value costs you something. Well, that is the assumption that drives our passage this morning in Acts 15. So let me just review for you for a moment. Where are we in the book of Acts? Well, by Acts 15, a lot has happened. The church has grown rapidly from about 70 people to thousands of people spread all throughout the Roman world. It grew rapidly among Jews in the first six chapters and then among Samaritans in chapter 8. The gospel extends to the Samaritans and then it extends again to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10 and it's growing among the Gentiles. So the church is expanding rapidly but up through chapter 11 of Acts, everyone who was saved had lived a moral life. You got the Jews. They were moral people. They obeyed the Old Testament law. They were very moral in the eyes of the rest of the world. Even Saul, who became Paul, I mean, other than the whole killing Christians part, he was a really pretty outstanding guy. Really moral life that he lived. Then you got the Samaritans, who Samaritans in general obey the Old Testament law. And then you got Gentiles. In Acts chapter 10, it's a man named Cornelius and his family. And the text tells us that they were God-fearers, which was a way in Hebrew that you described a Gentile who obeyed the Jewish law. So even they were very moral people. So up through Acts chapter 11, everyone coming into the church, they were all what the world would call good people. 
They lived moral, law-abiding lives. But all that changes with the first missionary journey, which we studied last week. Acts chapter 13 and 14, Paul and Barnabas leave the area of Judea and Syria and they go out and they go into the Gentile world and they begin to proclaim the gospel to Gentiles who were not God-fears. Gentiles who didn't obey the law, they didn't even know the law. They did all kinds of wicked stuff and yet Paul and Barnabas preached the gospel to them and everyone who believes they welcome into the church. So that was stunning. But what was even more stunning is that once these Gentiles come into the church who don't even know the law, Paul and Barnabas don't tell them, well, now you better start practicing it. Paul and Barnabas don't go to great efforts to teach the law to the Gentiles. They don't make them obey the law. They build these Gentile churches where the law doesn't play any major part. Now that rubs some people the wrong way. There were some people who were in the church who were believers who just couldn't stomach the thought that there's all these Gentile churches where people are not being taught and practicing the law of the Old Testament. And so some of those people raise an issue in Acts chapter 15. So look with me, starting in verse 1. Acts 15, verse 1. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren. We're we're in a Gentile church here. Unless you Gentiles are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. Now, circumcision is mentioned a couple times, but it is subsumed within the larger question in verse 5 of the law. And when a Jew talks about the law with like a capital L, he or she is talking about the first five books of your Bible. Genesis through Deuteronomy are known to Jews as the law, and that is the revelation of God that tells a person how to be a Jew. It includes the story of their founding. It includes everything about Abraham, the covenants of promise, and all of the commands and ordinances and special ceremonies that Jews had to do. So for a Jew to know what it means to be a Jew, they would practice the law. First five books of the Bible. And so what these men, these believers from a a Pharisaic background are saying is that now that Gentiles are entering the church, they must practice the law, the first five books of the Bible, if they're going to be saved. So that raises a question. This is actually the first big question, like theological question that the church faced. Biggest theological question in the early years of the church was simply this, does a person have to obey the law to be saved? Okay, these these men would say, it's great that you Gentiles trusted in Jesus. Hey, good for you. Brownie points, awesome star. Okay, but now that you're in the church, now you got to obey the law. You got to learn the law and you got to practice the law or you are not saved. There's no way God will let you into heaven unless you obey the law. So what these men are really saying is there's no such thing as a free lunch. 
You can't have something as precious, as valuable as heaven and eternal life and relationship with God for free. There's just no way. You got to do your part. So faith and grace, that was a good start, but now it's time to get to work. You need to obey the law in order to be saved. Now that same idea is common today among many people, even many Christians. Now they don't trip up over the law in the Bible. It's more general than this. Here's how you'll hear the question framed by by someone, uh, maybe a Christian or a non-Christian today who has the same idea. They will ask, do you have to obey God to earn or keep or prove salvation? And they will say yes. You must obey God in some way. Now, it may not be the, the Mosaic law of the Old Testament. It may just be general rules like don't murder or don't rape or don't steal. You can't do those things or you won't be saved. So the general idea here, what these people believe, is that you enter the Christian life through faith in the gospel, good, but then you earn the rest of salvation or you keep your salvation or you prove your salvation through good works. Through coming to church, through giving to the poor, through obeying God, through avoiding all that really bad stuff like murder and all that kind of stuff. If you do the right things, then you will be saved. That's an idea I hear a lot. I was having a conversation with a good friend of mine who's not a Christian. Really like this guy. He's, he's interested in religious things. And we're having this great conversation the other day about what we believe. And I was explaining to him my beliefs. And I was telling him how I think that, that eternal life and forgiveness are, are a free gift. And I was trying to illustrate that to him. I told him, I actually believe that if a Christian who's trusted in Jesus goes out and kills somebody, they'll still go to heaven when they die. He found that shocking. He could not believe that. He was just, you just saw this incredulous look on his face. Are you kidding me? God would let somebody who committed murder into heaven? There's just no way. Now, why is he saying that? Because he believes the basic assumption we started with. There's no such thing as a free lunch. At the end of the day, you've got to keep the rules to become saved or to stay saved or to prove you're saved. So how does the church deal with this, the first great controversy that it faced? Well, let's look, starting in verse 7. Does a person have to obey God to earn or keep or prove salvation? Verse 7, after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test? By placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. All the people kept silent and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they had stopped speaking, James answered saying, Brethren, listen to me. Simon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. 
With this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after these things I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen and I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from long ago. Therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. Peter and James agree. They give the same answer, we'll unpack it, but the basic idea, what they're trying to get us to understand as you think about that question that's on the screen right now, the answer from the early church was, grace needs no law. In other words, grace is sufficient. Salvation, getting to heaven, eternal life, forgiveness, grace brings it to you. You do not need to add anything else to grace to be saved. Okay, so let's unpack that answer. It begins with Peter telling us in the first few verses that we read that that God makes no distinction between law followers and law breakers when it comes to salvation. And Peter is just reviewing for us the history of Acts. He's saying, guys, remember, when when we Jews who are good in the eyes of the world, we're the law followers. We keep God's list of commands. When we believe the gospel, God brought us into the church and he did this crazy thing so we'd all know it. He filled us with the Holy Spirit in a miraculous way. There were flames of fire on our heads and we were speaking in tongues. We all knew we're in God's family at that moment. And then when God went to the Samaritans, who are not quite the rule followers we are, God did the same thing. And then he went to the Gentiles, who are not the same rule followers we are. God did the same thing. In other words, when God brings this gift of salvation, Peter's saying he has not been making any distinction at all. The law does not matter when it comes to salvation. So Peter's first point, God makes no distinction between law followers and law breakers when it comes to salvation. And that's good news because of point number two. Second thing Peter says is, why does he make no distinction? Because in reality, none of us are law followers. That's the point of verse 10. If you look again in verse 10, Peter is going to say something which you can't quite imagine in our context, how amazingly humble and radical this is to say. Look again at verse 10, midway through. He says, uh, why are you putting God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke, meaning the law, which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. It's an incredibly humble thing for a Jew to say. He's saying, yeah, to the world I look good. To the world I look like a law follower, but I am a law breaker just like every Gentile out there. There's no difference between them and me. Peter is stumbling upon a theological truth that Paul will summarize for us many years later when he wrote the book of Romans. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, you all know it, 4 All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Peter wants us to understand that in reality, there is no such thing as a law follower. No, other than Jesus, the only guy to ever do it, no one has followed the law. We are all lawbreakers. We have all failed. Now, we may look good in the eyes of the world, but in the cold, hard light of God's stare, we are all sinners who have failed, who have broken the law. 
And so Peter wants his audience to understand. He wants us to understand that if you are going to add obedience to salvation, if you're going to say that you have to keep the rules either to earn salvation or keep salvation or prove salvation, then we are all doomed. We're all doomed because we all break the rules. Because the moment you add obedience into the equation for salvation, you are drawing a line in the sand. That's what you're doing. You're drawing a line in the sand and you're saying everyone who's on this side, the disobedient side, doesn't matter if they have faith, they're not getting saved. But everybody who's on this side, the rule following side, they're going to go to heaven. Now, if you ask the average person, where are they going to draw that line? Right to the other side of all the really bad sins. Like murder, rape, apostasy, adultery. We're going to put that on the left because that makes us feel bad. We don't want to do that stuff. But all the little stuff like lying or maybe a little cheating on a test or your taxes, that's on the right because no one really cares about that. Okay? So that's how we do it. We draw the line so we're in and bad people are out. Okay, Peter says. That's what you want to do. If you want to draw a line in the sand by adding obedience into the equation for salvation, then let's figure out where that line should be drawn. Okay, let's do it. So turn to Matthew chapter 5. You can leave your finger in Acts 15. Turn to Matthew 5. We're going to look at the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, and he is going to draw the line. Because the deal is, um, you don't get to draw the line in the sand yourself. Because you're not God. So God draws the line in the sand, and he says, okay, if you want to live by the line, if that's how your life will work, If you're going to use obedience to earn or keep or prove your salvation, then here's where the line is. So live up to this line or you're not getting there. So Jesus walks us through the line. Look with me starting in verse 20. Jesus says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that's a pretty high bar right there. The scribes and the Pharisees were really moral people. They were guys who were not committing any of those big sins. No murder, no adultery, nothing like that. They gave charitably to the poor. They attended temple. They did all kinds of good things. And yet Jesus says they're not good enough. No, that's not enough. Okay, so um, it's, the bar is high. Now he's going to take it a little higher in the next verse. Verse 21. You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court. And whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Jesus' point is that in God's eyes, saying something mean about someone is as bad as killing them. And not to us, we're humans, but to God. When you are mean to someone with your words, you are just as guilty as if you stuck a knife in them. So that's what my friend failed to understand. He couldn't imagine God letting a murderer into heaven, but according to the Bible, if that's your standard, then God's not letting me in because I said bad stuff about my little brother when we were growing up. Game over for me. Okay, so this is bad news, but it gets worse. Skip down to verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So let's just be really clear, men, every one of us men in the room, if obedience is required to earn or keep or prove your salvation, we are all going to hell. 
Because we've all failed this test. In God's eyes, adultery is equivalent to lusting after a woman, looking at her with desire, and we've all failed that. So we're all going to hell, but it gets worse. Look down, verse 48. It's not just men going to hell, it's women too. Verse 48. (laughs) Jesus gives us the ultimate bar. Here's the line in the sand, the conclusion of the matter. Verse 48. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the line. You don't get to draw the line in the sand because God drew it. There is only one line in the Bible, and it is perfection. So if you're going to add obedience into the equation, if you have to do good works to either earn or keep or prove your salvation, then you better be perfect. Because if you are not as perfect as God is, then you're going to hell. If obedience is any part of salvation, then we are, all of us, doomed. That is the only line. That's what people don't understand. There is no middle ground when it comes to obedience. God doesn't draw a middle line that's just okay compared to other people and say, just live to the good side of that line and we're okay. No. God says, if you want a line, here it is. It's perfection. This is why it always saddens me when I'll hear Christians talk about how they think that, that either your good deeds help you earn salvation, that's clearly wrong, or, or your good deeds help you keep salvation. Without good deeds, you'll lose it, or your good deeds is how you prove you're saved. If you don't have good deeds, you prove you're not saved. I just want to tell them, no, there's only one standard in Scripture. There's only one line. If good deeds are required, you better be perfect, or you're going to hell, and so am I. We are all lawbreakers. So we cannot add obedience into salvation, either to earn it or keep it or prove it, or we are all lost. And so that leads Peter to his third point. Because none of us are law followers, salvation must be by grace alone. If you can't follow the law, if you can't meet God's standard, then the only hope you have is that God will give you salvation as grace, as a gift. And Peter says that's how it works. Look with me again, Acts chapter 15. Look at verse verse uh, verse 11. He says, but we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they are also. We're saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus. What is grace? Grace means getting something good that you don't deserve. Grace is a gift. Grace, by its very definition, is getting something good for free. Grace is that free lunch that you can't get in this world. Grace is when you get something valuable for free that you haven't worked for. You don't earn it. You don't pay for it. You you don't even pay a discounted price for it. I think a lot of people confuse grace with a discount. They they conceive of salvation like this. It's like a a little kid. We'll call him Johnny. Johnny's walking down the street with his dad, and he looks in a shop window, and he sees a shiny new bicycle. It's beautiful. He wants it, but it's $100, and Johnny only has $1 in his pocket. His dad knows that. So his dad says, well, Johnny, you put your dollar on the counter. Everything you have, you put it on the counter. I'll put the other $99 and you'll get that bike. And that's grace. No, it's not. That's a discount. That's not grace because Johnny had to give everything he has 
to get the bike at a discounted price. That's not how God works. He doesn't give you salvation at a discounted price. It's not grace if it's not free. So grace is not a discount. Grace is also not a loan. I think a lot of people conceive of grace as a loan. So God lets you into his family for free. It's a gift, and now you better spend the rest of your life paying it back through good deeds. No, that's not grace. There are no strings attached to the gift. If there's any strings, any requirements attached to the gift, it's not a gift. It's a loan. That's not how God works. Salvation is an absolutely free gift with no strings attached. That's the point of the passage we heard earlier this morning, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Key ideas at the very end there, so that no one may boast. If grace is a discount, if you are Johnny and you put your $1 on the table to get a $100 bike, well, you still have room to boast because you gave everything for that bike. Yeah, you got a discounted price, but look at all you did. Or if grace is a loan, you got it for free, but now you're paying it back through a lifetime of good deeds. Well, you got a lot of good deeds to boast in. God says, no, I won't have any of that. You don't pay anything for salvation to get it. You don't pay anything to keep it. You don't pay anything to prove it. It's an absolutely free gift that was purchased for you by Jesus Christ. Salvation is absolutely free. It is a free gift or it is not grace. There is no middle ground. Salvation is absolutely free. And so that leads to the fourth and final point. If salvation is by grace alone, then, verse 19, please stop adding the law back in. That's where James takes us. James agrees with Peter. He uses the Old Testament to prove the truth of he and James' position, and then he summarizes verse 19. Therefore, it's my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. Don't trouble them. Don't distort the gospel by adding works back in, by adding obedience back in. Keep the gospel pure. That's what James is talking about. Keep the gospel pure. It's a gift. There are no strings. There's nothing you must do to earn, keep, or prove salvation. It's a completely free gift. Now, actually, our kids understand that better than we do. Kids get the idea of grace. My twins turned six a couple weeks ago, and we gave them a lot of presents. And they opened those presents without pause, without hesitation. They didn't look at the present I'd given them and think for a moment, wait a minute, I wonder what strings are attached to this gift. I wonder what expectations are here. I wonder what dad is trying to bribe me to do. I wonder what's behind this gift. No, they just tear it open and they begin to enjoy it. And the moment they've teared it open, they assume that gift is now theirs forever. So the next day, if I come and take that back, there's going to be tears and tantrums because they assume it's theirs. And if they have a really bad day where they are disobeying and they're in trouble and they're just doing a horrible job, it never crosses their mind to take that gift and come back to me and say, Daddy, I was not worthy of your gift. Please take this back to the store. No, it doesn't matter how bad they are. They assume I gave it to them. So it's theirs forever. But we adults know better, don't we? We adults know there's no such thing as a free lunch. You don't ever get something for free, absolute free in this life. So if you give me some really valuable gift, how am I going to respond to that? Well, at first I'm going to feel really skeptical. 
what's this about? (laughs) What did you do that I don't know about? (laughs) What favor in the future are you trying to get by giving me this gift? Why are you trying to trying to brown nose me? What is this about? What's going on? I'm going to be skeptical because I've lived long enough to know you never get something for nothing. But if it really is a truly free gift, you're giving it to me with no strings attached, then how am I going to feel? Well, guilty. Because you gave me something so incredibly nice, I'm going to be uncomfortable when I'm in the room with you until I paid you back in some way. Next year, I'm going to make sure to get you a gift that's at least equally valuable. Because we adults, we cannot stand this idea of grace. We just can't wrap our minds around it. Everything costs money. Everything costs something. You never get something valuable for free. And so let me challenge you. When it comes to salvation, we need to stop acting like adults. And we need to act like our children. We need to believe it when God says it's a gift. We need to believe it when God says, you don't have to do anything because I already did it all. We have to believe it when God says there's no strings attached. There's no, no loan you're taking out here. It's yours forever. There's nothing you can ever do to lose it. We need to believe like our children that when God gives gifts, he doesn't give them like we do. There are no hidden expectations. There's no strings. There's no discount. There's no loan. It's an absolutely free gift. He is giving you to enjoy forever that he'll never take back. Salvation is a free gift, and I hope it's a gift that you've received at some point in your life in a group this big. I know there may be some of you who came this morning. You came to church Because you feel or you believe that God will like you more if you come here. By coming to church this morning, God is good with that. He's pleased with you. He likes you more than if you would have stayed home and slept in. And so you do things like coming to church or or giving money to charity. You do those things because you want God to like you and be pleased with you. And you need to understand, that's not how God works. God already loves you infinitely. His love is unconditional. You don't earn it, and that's good because you couldn't. There is no amount of good deed you could ever do to earn God's love. That's why he offers it to you for free. You don't need to come to church to get God's love. He loves you infinitely. He loves you so much that he sent his son Jesus to die for your sins. Jesus took all your bad stuff, put it on himself, died in your place, and then he rose from the dead, conquering sin so that he could offer you righteousness. You get the infinite righteousness of Jesus for free. You don't have to come to church for it. You don't have to give money to the poor. You don't have to do good deeds. You don't have to avoid bad deeds. You just got to say to God, I would like that gift. That's all it is. You got to be like my kids who say, yes, I'd like that. I receive that gift. I believe you're giving me this gift. That's the gospel. You simply say, God, I believe you're giving me eternal life for free that Jesus earned it and I just get it. My hope for you this morning, my prayer for you this morning is that God would open your eyes so that you would understand that his love isn't something you have to work for. You don't have to come to church for it. You don't have to earn it. It is yours for free forever. All you have to do is say, yes, I'd like that. That's the gift of grace. And so as the church faced its its first theological crisis It concluded that grace needs no law. We don't need to add anything to grace to be saved. Grace is sufficient to bring you eternal life. So obedience is not required to earn or keep or prove salvation. If you've trusted in Jesus and then you go kill someone, you will go to heaven. 
Now, I'm not arguing that you should do that. That'd be a bad idea for many reasons. But salvation is a gift. It is yours for free. So grace needs no law. But in the book of Acts, the people who really loved the law weren't yet ready to let go of it. So they say, okay, so the law is not required for salvation, but, okay, the law is required for maturity. The law is required to be a a good Christian. So this idea develops here and continues really throughout a lot of the, the New Testament. The second big question that the church debated is how do you become a mature Christian? How do you become a good Christian? And the assumption of these Jewish people who became Christians was, well, you gotta obey the law. Law doesn't save you, but it's what makes you mature. It's what makes you good. What makes you an elite part of this community. So the question that we struggle with next, the second part of our, of our chapter, second big question that faced the church, does obedience make us better than other people, particularly other Christians? Well, the position that is advocated by those who oppose James and Peter is yes. Obedience to God makes you a better person, a better Christian. If you will obey God, then you are a good Christian. That's a position we call legalism. So legalism, fancy word for a very simple idea. Legalism says that your value, your worth, your status is determined by how well you keep the rules. So legalism divides the people of God into two groups, those who keep the rules and those who don't. And legalists are usually these people who keep the rules, and they don't really want to have anything to do with these people who don't. Now, what are the rules that you have to keep? Well, in this day and age, it's not the Mosaic Law. No one's telling you to avoid shellfish or anything like that. Um, The rules that you keep will vary from place to place. Different churches, different organizations have different rules that you must follow to be good in their community. And so um, in some places, the rules are uh, simply man-made commands. They're not found in the Bible. Examples would be tattoos or smoking. You better not have tattoos. You better not smoke or you're not a a good Christian. You're not welcome here. Now, I'm not going to argue about the merits of tattoos or smoking. That's not the point. I'm just going to tell you there's no verse in the Bible that says thou shalt not get tattoos or smoke. Okay, so that's a man-made rule that they put on their list. Other places fill their list with biblical commands. A couple examples for you would be things like don't get drunk. Well, that's actually a legitimate biblical command. It tells you don't get drunk. In the Bible, you shouldn't. It leads to a lot of negative consequences. Another example would be don't commit sexual sin. That also is true. The Bible tells us don't commit sexual sins. It's bad for you. That hurts you. So those are legitimate commands in the Bible. But what a legalist does is he takes those legitimate commands and he turns them into a litmus test. It's a test to figure out whether you're good or not. It's a test to figure out whether you belong or not. So if you're the kind of Christian who has gotten drunk in the past or you've slept around in the past, then we really don't want to have anything to do with you. Maybe God will accept you into heaven, but he really doesn't like you very much because that's not what good people do. And so please go find another place. That's what legalists do. They divide the people of God into good people, the bad people, based on whether you keep the rules. Okay, so how does the church respond to this second controversy? Do you have to obey God? Do you have to keep the rules to be better than other people? Well, James is going to give the answer in the next couple verses. Look at verse 20. He says, 
right after telling them that we shouldn't put any more burden on the Gentiles, he says that we write to them, that is to the Gentiles, that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him since he has read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Now at first glance, sounds like James is a legalist. Right after telling us that you don't have to obey the law to be saved, he puts four laws on the page for Gentiles to follow. But actually, no, James isn't a legalist. You need a little background here. In the ancient world at this time, the church was a mixed family of Jews and Gentiles living together. A big family all gathering together in one place. I want you to think, we're almost to the holidays. What is it like when all your extended family come to town? Or, or you go somewhere. You, you all go visit and, and you're all going to stay together in one house and there's going to be parents and kids and grandparents and aunts and uncles and cousins and somebody's going to bring their boyfriend or girlfriend. It's going to be really awkward. All these people shoved into one house for like three or four days. And when you're all shoved into that one house, there are going to be certain behaviors that are fine. There's nothing morally wrong with those behaviors, but they're going to get on people's nerves when you're all in one house together. For me, it's loud talking and microwave popcorn. I have a thing about both loud talking, loud noises give me a headache, so I really don't like loud sounds. And microwave popcorn, I don't really know what my deal is. I think the smell of those like three or four kernels that don't pop and they just sit there and burn in the bag and like the smell doesn't go away for hours even after you've enjoyed your popcorn just rubs me wrong. I just really don't like that smell. And so even though there is nothing wrong with talking loud or microwaving popcorn, you might decide not to do those things because you want my day to go well. That's what we call love. That's love. (laughs) Love is simply sacrificing your legitimate rights to bless another person. And what James wants us to understand is that when we think about how we unite together as a family of God, love is better than law. If you want to know how do we live life together, how do we do life as one family of God, James is saying, don't go to the law, go to love. Love is what will unite you together. And, and so what James does in this passage, these four things that he tells Gentiles to avoid, what we need to understand is all four of those things. So meat sacrificed to idols, fornication, meat from a strangled animal, or meat with the blood in it. All four were things that Gentiles did all the time and thought were okay. They had no moral problems with them. Now, some things on that list are always morally bad. Like fornication. God doesn't want you to ever do that. But James wants his audience to understand the reason that you don't have fornication, sex before marriage, is not because you're trying to keep the rules so that you can be better than other people. That's not what it's about. Why should you not commit fornication? Well, out of love. Because you don't want to bring hurt into your life or other people's lives. You don't want to be a stumbling block to other people. It's love that motivates you to avoid that thing that's always bad. But he also lists things that are not moral issues. The whole meat with blood in it, there's nothing morally wrong with that. But Jews really didn't like it 
All four of these things Jews found really offensive because of some of the regulations in the Old Testament law. They really were sickened when they were around meat from a strangled animal or meat that was sacrificed to an idol or meat with with blood in it. Meat with blood in it. There's nothing biblically wrong with eating blood sausage. Lots of people do. I myself am not a fan. But there's no moral issue there. But James says, don't go there because you live in one big family with Jews who will find it really hard to sit at the same table with you. So please, out of love, sacrifice your legitimate right to eat that food so that the Jews can be with you and and, and not have a stumbling block in front of them. That's what unifies us together, is love. You, You don't need to walk around with a list of rules. That's not what your life is about as a Christian. Not some list of rules you're trying to keep. Your life as a Christian is about love. You go through the day looking for how you can be a blessing to other people. That's the essence of Christianity. All through the day, you're not trying to keep a list of rules. You're not rating yourself based on how you've kept a list of rules. You're not judging other people for how they've kept a list of rules. There is no list of rules. You're walking through your day seeking to love other people sacrificially. What can I do in this moment to demonstrate love for God and love for the people around me? Whatever I got to give up, I'm going to give it up because I love them, because I want to bless them. And so what James and Peter want us to understand is that in the church, love is better than law. You don't need the law to save you. Grace is sufficient for that. You don't need the law to mature you or unify you. Love does that far better than law. Okay, so let's bring this home. Acts 15, how do we apply it to our lives? Well, God wants us to understand that in the church, as as members of his church, our lives should be characterized by grace and love, not law. The, The essence of your life should be living in grace, living in love, not law. So as you interact, as you go through your day, what God is saying is that he wants you to pursue that which is gracious to other people, that which is loving to other people. He doesn't want you to try to keep a list of rules. Now, that's not an excuse for sin. God calls us to live a holy life, but we're living a holy life not because it makes us better than other people, not because it satisfies our checklist of rules. We live a holy life because we want to love God and love other people, and holiness is the best way to love other people. You bring blessing into their lives rather than pain when you choose that which is right. So we walk in grace and we walk in love. God's calling us to live that kind of life. But how do you know if you are living in love and grace rather than legalism? I'll give you a chart. Kind of chart this out in your life. A grid to help you think about this. How do you know whether you're a legalist or whether you're walking in love and grace? Well, legalism is quick to judge people. Love and grace is quick to show mercy. So you see someone do something that you're not a fan of. It's not how you would do it. Maybe it's a moral issue. Maybe it's not a moral issue. Whatever it is, they do it differently. They do it how you don't like it done. Are you quick to judge them for that? Or are you quick to show mercy to them? Hey, maybe there's stuff going on in their lives that I don't know about. Maybe I should cut them some slack and show them some mercy. Okay, so legalism, quick to judge. Loving grace, quick to show mercy. Legalism, quick to anger. Love and grace, quick to forgive. So when someone does offend you, when somebody sins against you, now I'm not talking about some huge tragic thing in your past. I'm just talking about the normal day-to-day pain that we cause each other because we're sinners. When somebody causes you pain, 
Are you quick to offer them forgiveness or do you nurse that pain and let it grow into anger? Do you address, okay, you, you cause me pain, I'm gonna confront that, I'm gonna talk about that, I'm gonna forgive you right now. Do you make it quick? People of love and grace quickly move to forgiveness. Third, people who are legalistic are typically very prideful. Pride, ultimately, it means thinking of yourself too much, whether you think too highly or too lowly. It's just thinking about yourself. Legalists think about themselves because it's law of life is about keeping the rules. So if they've kept the rules today, then they feel good about themselves. If they haven't kept the rules, they feel bad about themselves. Both are pride. Pride just means you're thinking about yourself. Okay? If you're a person of love and grace, then you're humble. Humility thinks it means that you stop thinking about yourself and think about other people. Humility isn't that you think that you're lower than others. No, you just stop thinking about you and you focus on other people. That's humility. That's what it means to walk in love and grace. Finally, legalism tries to keep them out. Love and grace tries to bring them in. Who is them? Well, it's different for everybody. Them is whoever's not you, not like you, different than you in some way, particularly different than you because they don't act like you. They don't keep your expectations. They don't keep your rules. Is Christianity about keeping all of them out so they don't contaminate us? Or is Christianity about bringing them all in so they're right next to us so they can experience the grace and love that we have? Love and grace welcomes people in. As you look at this list, you might find it convicting. I do. There's a lot of days when, to be honest, I'm on the left side of that chart I get angry, I, I'm prideful, something doesn't go my way and I get upset about it. And so I look at that and I face that and, and what I've come to, kind of my Blake's little conclusion on life is because I've seen so many of us struggle with the left side of this chart, I've come to believe that every single person on the planet, including everyone in this room, either is a legalist or a recovering legalist. All of us are. Because that's how our fallen hearts work. We want rules, not so we can follow them, but so others can follow our rules. We want them to live up to our standards. So we're all legalists at heart. The, the hope is, is that we're recovering legalists, that we're aware of it and that we're fighting against it and that we are trying in the power of the Spirit to live lives of love and grace. And so if you're like me, you find the left happening too often. And so what we're going to do now is turn to the Lord in prayer. And, and what I specifically want to pray for and what I encourage you to pray about this week is that God would begin to soften your heart and open your eyes to the, to the pride in your life, to the anger in your life, that he would help you to see where legalism has worked its way into your life and that you would instead be able to walk in grace and love. Remember, the, the only way to be a person who's gracious and loving is first you have to come to firmly believe that God loves you and accepts you in grace alone. If you're still believing that God requires you to do good things, then there's no hope of you leaving legalism because you're still in it. First thing is you got to come to firmly believe that. So we're going to pray and ask that God would, would work in our hearts to grow our faith so that we would come to believe like a little child that his gifts to us are absolutely free. And then second, we're going to pray that based on that belief that his love is free, that he would transform us and make us gracious people, merciful people, loving people just like him. So if you'll join me in prayer, Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you for your grace and your love. We thank you that you have accepted us in Jesus, not because we deserved it or earned it, but because Jesus willingly gave himself for us. 
We love you, Lord, not because we've chosen to love you, but because you first loved us. You gave us love for free. We will never be worthy of your love or worthy of your acceptance. But I pray, Lord, that for each and every one of us, I pray that you would grow our faith in your love and in your grace. I pray that we would come to believe that we are completely accepted in your sight based on the death and resurrection of Jesus and that there's nothing else we have to do to get you to love us. I pray, Father, that we would believe that eternal life and forgiveness and your love are an absolutely free gift with no strings ever attached. And then I pray that out of that firm conviction, Lord, that you would begin to change our hearts and reshape our personalities so that we would become people who are, who are humble, who are gracious, who are merciful, who are kind, who are sacrificially loving towards other people. I pray that you would convict us when we are living the life of a legalist, when we are trying to keep the rules, when we are trying to force others to keep our rules. I pray, God, that you would convict us of that and transform us and change us so that we might be gracious like you are gracious and loving like you are loving. We praise you, Heavenly Father, you have shown us a better way. You have transcended law, you have transcended lists of rules, and you have given us grace and love as a gift for eternity. Thank you that you've done that for us. Now help us to do that for others, we pray. In the name and for the worth of your son, Jesus, amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next week as we look at Acts 17.